Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. The holiday season is rapidly approaching, and that means we are going to be inundated with the urge to buy, buy, buy. Advertising around this time, and really at other times of the year, are always finding new and creative ways to encourage us to consume. Yes, it's a capitalist nightmare, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. And the realm of film and TV is really no stranger to this notion either. And in this space, it manifests as product placement. It's everywhere. Like literally, we we cannot escape it. Think Reese's Pieces and E.T., Manolo Blahniks and Sex and the City, or like half of the toys in Toy Story. It's actually one of my favorite games to play when watching a movie or a TV show because while product placement can be subtle, it can also be like pretty egregious too. So it's fun to play the game of which company paid a pretty penny to be included. You should try it, it's nice. Product placement is not only a blatant tool for advertising, but also has come around to being a tool for storytelling too, and we'll get into that. While product placement is pretty straightforward, the story of some of film and TV's greatest examples of it do have interesting stories behind them. So this week, we're taking a mini deep dive into the world of product placement in film and TV. So if that sounds good to you, let's get started. So product placement is exactly what it sounds like. It is the act of including a brand or product in a film or TV show. And that film or TV show probably gets paid to do it or gets paid in product to do it. Now, while many think that its origins began with the inclusion of racist pieces in the 1982 classic E.T. the Extraterrestrial, product placement began as early as the 1800s with the Lumiere brothers, who are often considered to be the fathers of film. And when they featured a popular soap product in their film, Washing Day in Switzerland. Product placement tends to manifest in three different ways, screen, script, and plot. Screen is your standard product placement and generally isn't called out specifically. Script is when that product appears in the script or is said in dialogue. And plot is when the product becomes a part of the film and generally has some close tie to the character and who they are. So, like I said, this can get very clinical and technical and very markety speak and very, you know, this is the doomsday of film, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're just here to have a little bit of fun. Product placement, unfortunately, is one spoil of capitalism that has rotted my brain. I love seeing product placement. <laughs> I think it's just like, because like the minute that you can seek it out and know that this is what you're looking at it becomes fun like it like I said it becomes a game and honestly this episode the reason why because you may be wondering Bobby why are we talking about product placement um 
for an episode? And that's a very good question I'd love to answer. Uh, the reason why we're talking about product placement is I was watching, um, probably a couple days before recording this episode, I was watching the uh, modern American classic, Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed, um, truly a bastion of American filmmaking. But I was watching it and in the opening scene, there is Shaggy and Scooby, Shaggy obviously played by the incredible Matthew Lillard, and they're like stepping out of a, a limo and they're drinking in this version of the film they were drinking um like eating a chicken sandwich and drinking out of a kfc cup and i like noted out loud uh, the person i was watching it with i was just like they changed that scene and the person i was watching it was just like what are you talking about and i was like they they changed that that wasn't a kfc cup it was a burger king cup because you know why? I owned Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed and I wore that DVD out. So I knew almost every frame in that movie and I was so sure. And like, just, I was like, I know I'm right. I know I'm right. So I had to look it up and I looked it up and it was changed technically, very technically. So the, the skinny of the whole situation was that Yes, it's different. And it's because HBO Max, which currently like has the the rights to the Scooby-Doo movies or like where you can currently see it on streaming, they have the international version up. So all the way back in 2004, when the movie came out, Burger King had the U.S. like like domestic product placement rights. So in the U.S. cut of the the movie, it is Burger King. So it wasn't like a Mandela effect. Like it was Burger King in the US version, but Burger King only got the US domestic rights for product placement for the film. So Warner Brothers was like, okay, we got to find someone to do the international version. So KFC won the international rights. So for every other country that's not the US, it's KFC that's in that movie. And even later on after that scene, there is a line where, again, Shaggy says, like, can't we investigate like a Burger King or something? And in the original version, but then they changed it to can't we investigate at a KFC or something? But the subtitles still say Burger King. So it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. So that is literally what birthed this entire episode because I was like there's got to be other really cool instances of of product placement and you know international rights and stuff this is the type of stuff that I I, I eat it up you know what I'm saying I eat it I gobbled it up and I put this little pop culture investigation on Twitter and it went a little bit viral so that's why I was like you know what let's talk about it let's talk about product placement so if you've seen it on Twitter yes if someone was ranting and raving like a lunatic about Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed and the KFC and Burger King cut of that movie. That was me. Um, it has like 89,000 likes now. So um, yeah, I, I appreciate that this is, this is my legacy on the internet. The girl who cares a little bit too much about Scooby-Doo and product placement. 
that's a good legacy if you ask me. But anyways, so like I said, we're here to deep dive into some some really cool instances of a product placement and the stories behind them. Uh, and why not start out with the movie that I've now mentioned two times already, and we're not even 10 minutes into the episode, which is E.T. and the use of Reese's Pieces, or if you are my mother, Reese PC. Um, obviously, Reese's Pieces is so like, synonymous with et at this point or maybe not at this point anymore but like at the time it was very synonymous with et and obviously like that wasn't meant to be like that was not the original intention obviously for a small circular chocolatey candy they were they were originally going to go with m&ms and so in the script um it is m&ms that et is supposed to be like eating and that's what uh, Elliot like uses to lure him like out of the cornfield and everything. It was written as M&M's, obviously. And the issue was like that was at the time Steven Spielberg's favorite candy, too. So like, again, it just made sense. But the issue of getting the rights was that obviously when you want to get the rights for use of a brand's name or likeness or whatever it is, you have to go to that brand and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Can I use your stuff? And more than likely, they will say, great, let's see the script. Let's see some, like, we need to know what it is that we're going to be lending our copyright to, um, like for for use in, we, we're going to need to know that. So there was a kind of a bit of a back and forth. So Mars, which is the company that makes M&Ms, wanted the to see the script for E.T. But at the time, Steven Spielberg was being very kind of secretive about the 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 sending out of the script, letting people see it like he didn't want anyone to take pictures of E.T. He didn't want anyone to see what the script was like. He wanted it to be completely under wraps. And so obviously that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't quite work for a company that is going to be lending their copyright to a film. So Mars had to pull out and they were just like, no, we're, we can't, we can't give you the rights. And at this point, Steven Spielberg wasn't Steven Spielberg yet. You know, like now I'm sure if he wanted to use a copyright for a company, they would just be like, yeah, just do it. Even if the movie is like not great, just do it because you're Steven Spielberg. But at the time, this might've been maybe his like third or fourth movie so he was still like a pretty like a pretty new filmmaker at the time so he hadn't quite built built up that uh that uh level of clout and, and credibility yet in hollywood so no company was just going to take him on his word so his commitment to being secret about you know the look of et and the script and everything i think was noble but for the business side of things i'm sure it didn't make things great especially on kathleen kennedy who was the producer who was probably tasked with going out and and getting these copyrights so they were in a bit of a pickle because they were like, okay, we can't use M&Ms, we can't go to Mars, so what's the next best thing? So Spielberg went to his second favorite candy, which was dun, da, 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 Reese's Pieces. So he went to Reese's Pieces and he was just, and who is owned by Hershey. And he was just like, hey, can I use this? And they were just like, yeah. Yeah, because I think at the time, Reese's Pieces obviously was kind of the, not inferior, but it, it didn't have the notability of M&M's. You know, like if, like I said, if you think of a small circular 
chocolatey candy, your first go-to is M&Ms, not necessarily Reese's Pieces. So they didn't have a ton of like brand recognition. So they kind of were just like, yeah, I mean, it it can't hurt us more to have you feature our candy in, in your movie. So go for it. And so they went for it and it paid off. It did dividends for, for Hershey as well as for E.T. E.T. went on to make, I think, like $350 million at the box office domestically. And apparently, allegedly, Reese's Pieces saw a roughly 65% bump in sales thanks to the kind of the response of of using the candy in the film. I think so many people, the reason why for, for this, and it's it's not hard to deduce how something like this happens Uh, because it happens in other films and tv shows too when you see a character that you really like using a product that you yourself can get your hands on the minute that you can get your hands on it you feel like the character you know so I think in this case a lot of people were like oh I feel like Elliot or like I feel like E.T. eating Reese's Pieces and so that's where they saw like a big bump like everyone was like oh Reese's Pieces E.T. it goes together it makes sense there you go that is that is the story of how Reese's Pieces got featured in E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Moving on to a movie that desperately wanted to be E.T. the Extraterrestrial but didn't didn't hit that marker in the least I don't think um is a movie called Mac and Me. It came out in 1988, so six years after the release of E.T. Now, like, it goes without saying that E.T. was, like, a massive film, but I need to put into perspective, it was huge. Like, it was a huge film for a couple of years, I think. It was the highest grossing movie of of all time. Like, it was massive, and I think it was, might have been knocked out by, I think, The Empire Strikes Back, the Star Wars um so this this was it was a big deal movie and for so long I think Hollywood was trying to find a way to capture the lightning in a bottle that was E.T. E.T. I think was just a very it was kind of like a meeting of the minds a very like once in a lifetime moment you got a, a really good cast it's led by this like dynamo child actor and Henry Thomas who you know has gone on to be like I think he was in The Haunting of Hill House like he's he's great but if you have not seen his audition for E.T. watch it go on YouTube and watch it this kid is just pulling the emotions out of you and he is just he's crying like you are just you feel where he's at you know what I mean Obviously, we have a very baby Drew Barrymore, which I saw, I could do a whole episode on E.T. And I, I I might actually, because it's it's one of my favorite movies. So I'm going to try and stop waxing poetic about it. But Drew Barrymore on her show had um, some of the cast come on and just talk about the experience of filming E.T. and its impact and everything. And she shared, Drew, that she because she was so small, she would just talk to E.T. Like when they weren't rolling, she thought that E.T. was real. She would have full on conversations with him and just, you know, she thought that she was a real person. And this is in tandem due to the fact that Steven Spielberg chose to shoot the film chronologically, meaning that they shot it in order of how the film is is seen um which doesn't usually tend to happen movies are kind of shot in the order of like you know 
like let's do the the big scene at the end and let's do like the smaller scenes at the beginning or let's do the big scenes at the beginning and the smaller scenes at the end so it's very possible that actors who have never met each other are having to do their most you know emotionally uh gut-riching scenes within the first couple of days of shooting it just all depends on budget and everything like that but to kind of help with the very sentimental value around the script and the story he chose to, and the fact that most of the main cast were children or young adults he chose to shoot in order to kind of really drive home the emotional impact of of the script so that ending scene where they're saying goodbye to et is them legitimately saying goodbye to et because it was the end of shooting so for a little drew barrymore this was a really like these emotions were very, very real. So Steven Spielberg saw that Drew Barrymore was was having full-on conversations talking to E.T. And this is like the E.T., like the puppet that they would use or like the suit um, that they would use. And so he hired these two guys to constantly keep E.T. like alive whenever Drew would want to talk to him. Um, so it was just a really, it's just, it's one of my favorite movies. It's just a movie that means so much to me. I think it's a movie that means so much to Steven Spielberg. And it's, it's, it was kind of like a movie that by all accounts shouldn't have been the biggest movie ever made at the time, but it was, and it stayed that way for a couple of years. So like I said, I could do a whole, a whole thing on, on E.T., the extraterrestrial. And you know what? I just might, I just might. Cause I love that movie that much. Mac and Me came out 1988, six years after E.T. Hollywood is always trying to find a way to replicate the magic of a really big movie. Um, look no further than literally all the remakes and sequels that we're finding this year or in the past couple of years, even around this same time as Mac and Me. Um, you think about a movie like Who Framed Roger Rabbit and then a couple of years later, we got a movie like Cool World, which is like, ah, I see what you're doing here, but that's not okay. That was a valiant effort on your part. Mac and Me is the weirdest movie I have never seen. I have not seen it in full. I have seen commentary videos. I've seen other people watch it. Um, I know it mainly from the kind of running gag between Paul Rudd and Conan O'Brien. Um, every time Paul Rudd has come on Conan O'Brien's like, you know, different shows or his podcast, he sometimes somehow mentions Mac and me. And it's become this kind of like running gag and like a meme on the internet. Um, so that is as much as, as I've had interaction with it. But I watched a, a, I watched a commentary video on it and it's the weirdest thing. First of all, the, it is a blatant ripoff of, of E.T. There's no mincing words about it. And the equivalent of this film's Reese's Pieces was McDonald's. Yeah, it was McDonald's, it was Coca-Cola, and it was Sears. Um, mainly McDonald's though. So I think it opens with like, there's a weird tie-in with Coca-Cola that these aliens who look, I'm sorry, disgusting. I'm sorry, they look horrible. Again, look up Mac and me, look up those aliens. 
there's nothing endearing about that. You know, like eventually like E.T. is scary at first, but you come around to him, you know, <laughs> like you eventually get on board and you're just like, okay, he's like kind of cute. You know, he's, he's a little, he's like ugly cute, right? The Mac and me creatures are ugly, ugly. Like they don't ever, they never come around and you're never like, these are kind of endearing. No, none of that. Um, they, they stay consistently a little bit grotesque, at least to me. I'm sorry. I just have to speak my truth on that. But in the beginning on their home planet, they, they like stick these like straws into the earth for like sustenance. And later in the movie, it's suggested that they are kind of, they run on Coca-Cola, like they, they survive off of it. So it's, assumed that this sus like this substance on their planet that they drink is coca-cola but not like in a can it's like just in the earth again it's strange but that's not even the strangest product placement in this movie it's mcdonald's it feels at times like a one running like a long running commercial for mcdonald's it's the strangest thing and so I did a little bit of digging and there's a Thrillist article um, talking about how this movie got made, which oftentimes in, in any of the, the, the content that I do, I, there's always a, every once in a while, there's a movie or a TV show that comes along that you're just like, how did this get made? Like, I've asked that question of Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And I, you're asking how did this get made? Because it's like a feat of, of visual effects, right? Like it's the, the melding of the animation and the live action. You know, it's just, it's really impressive to look at. So you're just asking from a scale perspective, how did this get made? For Mac and me, I'm asking the question of how did this get made? Like, how did no one stop this this movie at any point during production? It's it's not a great movie, guys. It's it's not a great movie. I'm so sorry. It's it's just not great. So, like I said, the big, you know, product placement piece of of Mac and me is McDonald's, and so you may be wondering. Why McDonald's of all things? Um, and that is a very good question. So the producer of the film, R.J. Lewis, apparently used to do McDonald's campaigns um, in his like, you know, like pre-Hollywood years. Uh, he used to work in advertising. And so he he remained close with the company. So then when he became a producer on, um, and I think he might have produced Karate Kid. So it's not like he's like this hack producer or anything like that. Like he, he, I think had, his heart was in the right place, right? This is a very Southern moment, which, you know, anyone from the South knows the old adage of, of bless his heart. You know what I mean? Like he tried that the effort and the heart surely was around. So he, he used to work kind of closely with McDonald's. So when he was producing this film, he saw it as like a grand opportunity to have this kind of like natural synergy. I don't know what natural synergy is, is afoot, but there's a natural like synergy there. So he worked for three years trying to get the movie and television rights to the McDonald's brand. And so according to him, he was the only person who was able to, to do that. He says in the Thrillist article, quote, we became the first to really get into the business of selling product movies through McDonald's. 
Louis recalls, a deal that would foreshadow Disney's decade-long cross-promotional agreement with the chain in 1996. Quote, I'm the only person in the universe that has ever had this exclusive motion picture rights to the McDonald's trademark, their actors, their characters, and the whole company, end quote. So yeah, he, I mean, he, he did do the very Herculean task and feat of getting the motion picture and television rights to McDonald's and basically kind of having a free for all with using the McDonald's brand. And boy, was it used. Um, not only is it just blatantly like mentioned, but I think the main character has his birthday party at McDonald's. For whatever reason, there is a random dance scene, like a, like a choreographed dance break in this movie. It's not a musical. There's no music. This, <laughs> it's just a random scene. It's just a random scene where people just start dancing in the middle of a McDonald's and it's just, it's nuts. Like I said, it's nuts, guys. It's crazy. But I do think that there's some, there's some, some teeth to this because I think he's right. Like this was kind of the first time McDonald's was used pretty consistently within, um, like as like product placement within a movie or a TV show. And eventually, like they said in the article, that would foreshadow Disney's decade-long cross-promotional agreement with the chain. Like in the mid-90s, Disney and McDonald's really went hand-to-hand or hand-in-hand. Um, and there's a lot of really great uh, like YouTube videos that talk about that agreement. Um, Defunctland has a really good, uh, a really good episode on that that whole kind of like time and the origins of the agreement and everything. It's really really fascinating. Um, so highly recommend if you're interested in Disney and McDonald's kind of product placement cross promotional relationship that happened from like the mid '90s to the mid 2000s. It's worth taking a look at. But for Mac and Me, getting back to Mac and Me, um, this. This was a, a, a first time where this was happening. So apparently it wasn't that McDonald's just wanted to have all this presence. It really was RJ Lewis and his um, very tenacious agenda to get McDonald's into this movie. And so they did, he didn't really go to McDonald's directly. He went to a guy named Jim Williams, who was the president and CEO of Golden State Foods. And Golden State Foods was the like processor and distributor for, I think, the meat, ketchup, lettuce, and like Big Mac sauce for McDonald's. And Golden State Foods' like sole client was McDonald's. So basically, R.J. Lewis had like direct, like a direct path to McDonald's. Um, and allegedly, the reason why they kind of agreed to, to you like allowing for McDonald's to be used in the film was that they wanted to see it as like a humanitarian effort to give back the, I think there was like a portion of the proceeds of the film, which I don't know how many proceeds came from the film, but a portion of the proceeds were meant to go to the Ronald McDonald, like, uh, you know, like charity organization. So they saw it as like an opportunity to give back. And so they gave full rights to R.J. Lewis and they, boy, did they go for it. You know, 
wow that they go for it. It may be thinking like, oh, Mac and me, like like Big Mac. Apparently that was not the intention. According to Lewis, he said that the na- the name Mac means mysterious alien creature. Do I believe that? No, but you know, it's a good, it's a good cop out, I think. Uh, so yeah, Mac and me, what turned into regular product placement full on kind of swung to the other side and just became just a full on commercial, I think, for McDonald's. It's a lot more egregious in the film from what I understand. Um, It is, it's very blatant. Like McDonald's is all throughout that thing. I think they're only, they kind of gave him free reign. The only thing was that they didn't want Ronald McDonald to appear in the film. And he ended up appearing in the film in that random dance scene within the McDonald's. So I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think McDonald's definitely has parsed out their product placement in small doses. Like the biggest McDonald's product placement that I remember as a kid was in Spy Kids. Um, In the first Spy Kids movie, it's like when Carmen puts that little dehydrated pack into like the, the rehydrator microwave thing. And it just comes out like a Big Mac and fries. And then in the second movie, it's the same thing. Um, That's the biggest product placement I've seen from McDonald's since Mac and Me. And I think they might have. I think they might have learned their lesson with infusing McDonald's into the plot of a movie. Uh, We, I don't really think we've seen that uh, again. You know, I don't really think we've seen that again. And so that brings us to the the final kind of instance of product placement. So we've seen product placement that has worked really well with E.T. and Reese's Pieces. We've seen product placement that has worked eh, not so well with Mac and Me and McDonald's. And that brings us to our third and final example, which is Wayne's World. If you've seen Wayne's World, you know exactly which scene I'm talking about, which is a very cheeky meta scene where they were Mike Myers and Dana Carvey are basically going back and forth just showing like egregiously showing different brands and the the it's it's a it's a it's a very funny scene um just because it's so egregious and they really like leaned so heavily into the a uh, very capitalistic nature that is product placement i think in some movies there's this like there's this urge to like not want to make product placement seem so blatant and it is like if you're in a movie or in the world of a movie where you're supposed to suspend your disbelief and then all of a sudden you just see a brand that you know from your reality it kind of is a it's a bit of a, a juxtaposition there you know what i mean like it is a you can't really say that like, oh, we're trying to make this as organic as possible. And you're shoving, you know, a brand that I see every day when I go to the grocery store into this very fantastical world. It's very different. You know what I mean? Um, so I think basically Wayne's World fully leaned into that. And I think all the brands that were in the, the it was like a lot of brands. It's like Doritos, Pizza Hut, Pepsi, like There are so many brands that they managed to fit in this maybe two minute scene. Mountain Dew, Reebok, Duracell, like Coca-Cola, Chia Pet, Levi's, like it's so many brands. And this is just for the movie as a whole. The movie as a whole had a lot of 
product placement within it. Um, but I think the the urge to just lean into it is what made it really, really fun. I don't know. Like, I think it's kind of cemented itself as one of the best examples of product placement. And it is it shows the kind of not hypocrisy of of product placement, but just shows like, yeah, we we are a movie and we want to either get free stuff or get paid to to promote these products. So just lean in with us. It's like suspending your disbelief in a different way. You know, like you're in on the joke type of thing. Um, and I think that that's why that that movie is so brilliant for that. And I think uh, I've seen a lot of um, articles kind of talking about that a weird offshoot. It's not exactly product placement. It's more just using the rights to it. But the best advertisement, and it's not like this song needed advertising. It's a very, very big song. Um, but it was for Bohemian Rhapsody, which allegedly was, it debuted in 1975, but it didn't really break the, the, the charts in America just, just yet. Um, it was kind of just a song that was like, you know, known by people who knew Queen, but it wasn't this massive song. And then after Wayne's World, it shot up to like number two, on the charts. And so that's insane. What those companies might have wanted out of that really egregious product placement scene happened naturally for for Queen and the song Bohemian Rhapsody. And it's kind of crazy because like I said, Bohemian Rhapsody is a major song, but I think at least in US markets, it was due heavily to that scene in the car where they're singing Bohemian Rhapsody and like they're like head banging. And it's just like, it's a, it's such a huge like movie moment. And that is, that's technically kind of like product placement, you know, like if a song is a product, it was placed in that movie and it, it did, it did numbers for the movie. So ultimately, as we, as we kind of wrap up this, this week's episode, I want to leave you with a, a quote from a New York Times article from this year that talks about kind of the the illustrious world of product placement and the the processes that go into it and how methodical it is. I think the article opens with talking about like using like a curb your enthusiasm scene where Larry David like opens the refrigerator and like the refrigerator is name brand and then when he opens it up like it's you know, filled to the brim with all these like foods and, and these beverages and every one of them name brand, like that's all product placement. Like they're, and I think they also mentioned in the article that a lot of the times, a lot of these um, companies kind of use the products, like they give the products to a lot of prop masters for studios. They're kind of just like, hey, we're gonna leave this like case of our soda uh, for your consideration to use within this film. It's kind of, I think they said like, it's like quid pro, quid pro quo. Yeah. Like they're just kind of like, hey, you could, you could use this. We're not gonna say that you, you should, but it would be nice if you used our, if you used our product in our film. Thank you so much. So that's kind of the vibe. Also, last thing before I read this, this quote, um, there's almost kind of like a lore or lore there's almost like a, a lore around product placement too like it's come out like what brands are very like particular about how their products are used outside of the realm of 
however that product is intended to be used, i.e. within product placement. And one such brand is Apple. Apple, as you know, or maybe not know, um, within film and TV, Apple kind of has this clause. And I don't know if they still adhere to it as strongly as they did in the early goings, but to kind of maintain their own brand recognition and brand principles, they had a clause that within kind of film and TV, characters who are evil cannot use Apple products. Only characters who are good can use Apple products. So I, like I said, I don't know how strongly they adhere to this now, but if you see a movie or a TV show where characters are using Apple products, you can tell who's the bad guy and who is the good guy by if they're using an iPhone or not. Like I said, it's a, it's a tool for, for storytelling. Like oftentimes product placement now, I think, um, has come around to being like a shorthand. Like if you see a character using a product that's cool, you're going to associate that character with, with being cool. You know, it's like, it's like Marty McFly wearing those like hyper dunk Nikes, right? Like you're going to associate that particular style of Nike shoe with Marty McFly and being cool and like going on a, uh, a hoverboard and you know at the time it was 2015 which is not the future anymore but like you just associate that with like a cool like retro futuristic era and like this cool character who's like on the run like these products that are featured are able to quickly relay to the audience who this character is like if you see a character who's at a bar slamming jack daniels there's a certain connotation that comes with that. You're like, that's a tough, that's a tough character. You know, that's a tough SOB. You know what I'm saying? Like that's kind of the, the vibe that you get off of the character. So like I said, closing, closing quote from this New York times article on product placement that came out this year, which is quote, the success of product placement as a marketing strategy relies on the interplay between the suspended reality on screen and the free market economy of the off screen world. It became obvious just how powerful this exchange can be when a character on and just like that had a heart attack while riding a Peloton, causing the real life brand's stock to plunge. On the flip side, the breakfast brand Ego has re- on the flip side, the breakfast brand Ego was reinvigorated when it was featured on the show Stranger Things as a key plot point in the series. After some years of lacking sales, there was a reportedly 14% spike after the show's first season aired. So this is the impact of a product placement. It is, like I said, it's everywhere. It's not going anywhere. Um, movies and TV shows will forever find a way to, to, you know, plug a little bit of a real world thing into the reality of, of, a, of a movie or a TV show. I like that it's come around to being able to be used as a, a storytelling device in certain, in like a certain capacity, you know, like I like that it's able to, to function as that shorthand. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, Afternooners. If you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you've made it to the end of this episode, congratulations, you're an Afternooner now. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review this podcast if you had a good time. It helps out the pod. You get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod and I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at The Afternoon Special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby. 
H-I-I-M-B-O-B-B-I and shameless plug, shameless plug. You can also find me at Oscars on the official Oscars page. I will be making content there uh, for the next couple of months. You can go come hang out with me. I'm your Academy bestie. I came up with the name and it may be a little bit cringe, but I like it. But yeah, if you're super into film and you like the Oscars and you like my face to a certain degree, you can like two out of the three of those things. I, and it doesn't matter which two out of the three. But if you like any of those things, come over, hang out with me on the official Oscars TikTok channel. I can't believe I'm saying that. It's nuts. But yeah, go check it out. It's really, it's fun. And I just, please, please like the videos that I make. Um, <laughs> I, I want this to, to do well. And uh, if you're thinking, Bobby, I... I need to, first of all, go follow the official Oscars TikTok. And I also need to scour the internet for everything I can find on Mac and me. I'm not going to remember all of that. Bestie, I get it. P please proceed with caution on Mac and me. Um, it is, it sure is a movie that has scenes in order and words in a script and it exists. I put all that information in the description box just for you when you're ready. Um, this episode is is powered by the love of filmmaking, and that is for me the embodiment of that is the the score for for E.T. the Extraterrestrial by the incredible John Williams. He's my favorite composer. This is my favorite score. Um, every time I, I listen to it, I just get filled with, you know, like the the magic of Hollywood, the magic of movies, you know. So. That's what this episode's powered by. The specifically the end credits song. It's like starts, it opens up with a very like fluttery piano. It's so beautiful. If you haven't listened to the end credits of of E.T., like that, it is ah, it's so good. It's so good. So, anyways, that's that's what this episode's powered by. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you'll join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Are you a Marvel fan? Matt, you know I am. Jeff, I was asking the listener. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought it seemed like a weird question because, you know, we've been doing a Marvel podcast together for nine years now. No, no, I was trying to grab the attention of all the Marvel fans out there for this ad. Oh. I thought it was weird, too. You should definitely warn us. Good note, Ashley. Well, if you like Marvel movies and TV as much as we do, join us for the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. He did it again. Whether you're in a relationship, single, or recently heartbroken, you could be navigating some tough stuff. And it really can be challenging to do this on your own. We all need help when it comes to our relationships, very specifically, our love lives. I'm Jillian, and each week on my podcast, Jillian on Love, I share skills on how to strengthen our relationships, how to build a stronger sense of self, and how to heal heartbreak and choose better partners. Learn how to start making change today and search for Jillian on Love wherever you're listening now.